American democracy is only as strong as the citizens who participate in it. My name is Mila Atmos, and I host Future Hindsight, a civic engagement podcast. Each week this fall, we're interviewing citizen changemakers around the country about ideas to rebuild our economy, the future of work, education, and policing. We shine a light on the dedicated citizens working to improve our society and use their examples to inspire our listeners to get engaged in their own communities. Listen to Future Hindsight now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Politics in Question, the podcast where we look at how our institutions are failing us and what we can do about it. I'm Julia Azari. I'm a political science professor at Marquette University. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. And I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. All right. So it's November 13th, 2020. We're recording this about nine o'clock Eastern time. And we're all reeling from another couple of weeks in American politics. I don't really know what else to say about that. We're trying to make sense of the election and the response to it and what it all means for American democracy. And so I'm actually going to start briefly with the news cycle that was emerging after Biden's speech last Saturday. The the networks called Pennsylvania uh, for Biden, and that put him over the 270 mark to become the president-elect. And um, in response, he gave he gave a kind of pride and time address. And one of the things that he did was he talked about his election mandate and made a pretty expansive and deep claim to an election mandate to change the direction in American politics, not just in terms of immediate policy, fighting the coronavirus, um, dealing with the economy, but some more more extensive things like battling systemic racism. And as a result, you know, I can kind of attest to this because I wrote a book about mandates in 2014. They're, they're really kind of became this news cycle all about Biden's mandate. And, you know, I got a, a pretty big flurry of, of media calls about that. And it looked like, you know, that was going to be the cycle was this set of questions about what is what is Biden's mandate? What will he do? Um, and also maybe a, a news cycle about the historic nature of, of Harris being elected to the vice presidency. And here, I want to think about the Republicans' reaction. And I want to think about it in terms of one of my, my favorite childhood books. So we're going we're gonna to turn to literature in a whole new way this morning. Um, this book is called Henry's Awful Mistake. And I read it a thousand times a day in 1985. It is about a duck. It is about a duck who is having a lady friend over for dinner. He sees an ant in his kitchen. And he starts, basically he takes a hammer to the wall um, to, to deal with the, with the ant. And eventually he ends up breaking his pipes and then the house floods. And he essentially destroys his entire house trying to get rid of this ant so that, so that his lady friend won't see it. And the story ends with him, spoiler alert, walking away from his home with a suitcase to start over. And this is kind of my read on what's happening with with congressional Republicans and other elite Republicans who are who are refusing to kind of push back against the Trump narrative that he didn't really win he didn't really lose the election. 
So we have all these prominent Republicans kind of saying, you know, we'll see, we'll, we'll recount the votes, we'll see who's president. My own Senator Ron Johnson said there's you know, nothing to congratulate Joe Biden for at this point. Um, and so this is kind of my read on this is this is a reaction to what was going to be probably a really good news cycle for the Democrats at a kind of critical turning point. And they kind of tried to shift this this narrative and, and have this news cycle suck all the air out of the room, which it has. But with the possibility of destroying American democracy in the process, where we might all have to kind of walk away with, you know, suitcase in hand from the flooded wreckage of our democratic norms and values. So this is kind of what I've been thinking about. I've obviously also given some thought to this question about Biden's claim, um, you know, on, on a mandate given the election results. And I think there's a good chance that now, you know, Arizona has been called um, for Biden and it looks like Georgia may eventually be as well, as well as winning back Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania, that this does actually look kind of like a convincing, it's a convincing victory and it's a victory that you can easily spin into um, a story about a Democratic candidate who is kind of able to win in places that Democrats have been frozen out before. And in this sense, the Electoral College kind of both made Biden's victory more precarious, but also like helps to shape a distinct meaning for it. And I think that's, that is a kind of um, difficult news cycle for the other party. And we know that winning and losing is really important in, in contemporary American politics. And so that was my read on what was happening earlier this week. And it seems to me like, you know, the intent could be relatively small, but the effects could be really extensive and spiral spiral out of control easily. So, you know, with that, we have we have a couple of questions, I think, to talk about here. I, I want to get everyone's read on this, you know, what are the Republicans doing? And then I want to talk a little bit about the results themselves. Um, what do we see coming out of different demographics? What are the implications for the urban-rural divide? Um, what, you know, what might we predict for the future of the two parties. So that's kind of where we're going to, where we're going to go today. Um, let's, let's start with some initial reactions. James, do you want to get us started? The first thing I want to say is that if we think about this election, one thing that's truly remarkable is with Kamala Harris being the first uh, female vice president in this nation's history, and that happening 100 years after Americans ratified and Tennessee specifically ratified the 19th Amendment, making it part of the Constitution, giving women the right to vote. I think that's a very it's at least for people who think in historical terms, people looking back on this moment in the future, that'll be a very poetic. Um, it'll be a very poetic uh, end to this election, I think. With regard to the actual election, it seems to me it's a lot narrower we then then we tend to think of right you know 78 million versus 73 million votes approximately yes there's more on one side but that's pretty close it's what five million or so and the house uh, republicans gained ground there the senate is going to a runoff in georgia where you have two special elections to decide control of the senate regardless of what happens it's going to be very almost evenly divided and I'm excited about our conversation today because I think we in America today think about politics and mandates and even when they're not mandates. And I mean, Julia, you know much more about this than I do. So I'm just kind of 
um, pontificating or thinking off the top of my head right now, but it seems to me that we have a hard time making sense of what happens in elections when there aren't clear mandates or at least overwhelming results pointing to one side or the other. And as far as you know, what's happening right now with the president refusing to concede, I'll, I'll be the first to say I wish that he would discuss this election differently. I wish his rhetoric would be different. I think rhetoric matters. I think a big part of elections is about reconciling the losers in elections to the outcome and their supporters. And I think that rhetoric helps facilitate that. I would remind Republicans that in 2016, there was an outcry that how dare Hillary Clinton not concede the race on the night of the election. But I would also remind you know Democrats that Hillary Clinton is, is telling Joe Biden in August to fight this every step of the way. Fight the results. Democrats also are getting their legal teams ready to go. And one of the most unfortunate things about our politics today is how we litigate political questions and how we, you know, we have policies and the courts, the final word in policies. But now it seems that we've gotten to the point where nothing can actually happen in elections until the courts finally tell us who won. It's like we everybody's running to the courts. And the president has every right under the law to run to those courts. And it seems to me, I haven't seen any evidence that there's been widespread fraud, but yeah, there is a there are laws in place. There is a process in place to decide that. And I don't think that it's going to drag out very long. And the second, I think that that is made clear. My, my expectation is that the Republican Party will very quickly um, pivot and they'll you know move on. And the president will have an excuse for why he lost. And then he will then do whatever he's going to do. And that isn't even unprecedented. If you think about Andrew Jackson resigning his Senate seat in 18... 18- uh, after the 1824 election and basically spending four years calling Henry Clay Judas and, and, and the president, uh, John Quincy Adams, corrupt. And that didn't destroy America. And so I think that we, you know, it, one, we need a lot more historical perspective. But two, I think we have to acknowledge the reality of the situation and how messy it is and how it's not overwhelming one side or the other. I don't know if any of that made sense, but that's just what's on my mind. It, it makes sense to me. And I, I I want to go back to Julia's uh, introduction with Henry's awful mistake, because I think that that is actually a very useful parable about overreacting. But it's also a parable about short termism versus long termism. So so in this story, you know, Henry is really worried about this ant and he kind of panics. Right. Um, And he doesn't think about the long term consequences of of his actions. And, you know, as a as a parent of a a seven year old and a four year old, uh, you know, I I have two daughters who very much overreact to things and sometimes make things a lot worse. And I think it's that that children's books have these kind of life lessons about, you know, think one of those one of the life lessons is before you act, think about the long term consequences. And there's a, a ton of political science literature uh, on the consequences of what happens if the loser refuses to concede. In fact, there's a great book um, that I've been looking at a lot uh, in the last week uh, called Loser's Consent by uh, Sean Bowler and, and a bunch of co-authors. And you know, basically, the, the premise of the book is that democracy really depends on the losers. The losers have to confer legitimacy on the electoral process and have to acknowledge that the results are free and fair 
and have to agree that rather than, you know, contest the results as, as fraudulent or rigged or, you know, somehow unfair, they have to say, look, you know, this was a fair election. We'll, we'll contest it better next time because that's how democracy works. And rather than saying that, that somehow the other side cheated, we say, look, you know, they won the election. So we have to think about how we can better appeal to voters in the next election. That's, you know, a, a fundamental principle of democracy. But if the losing side says, no, no, that's not fair. The other side cheated. Then that undermines faith in the electoral process. And, you know, without free and fair elections, you know, you don't really have a democracy anymore. You also have the uh, potential for violence. I've been thinking, uh, you know, a lot about Spain uh, in, in 1936, in which the left won a narrow victory, uh, and the right said that's not uh, legitimate. Uh, right-wing militias uh, supported a coup. Franco, General Francisco Franco, led that coup, and, and Spain went 41 years as a, as an authoritarian country, only becoming a democracy again in 1977. So I, I don't think we're Spain 1936, but I think that there's an important uh, lesson there, which is, you know, that democracy fundamentally depends on on the on the losers accepting uh, the outcome. And, you know, I, I don't know what's going on with the Republican Party right now, James, and you probably have have more insight there. Than, than I do, but it, maybe they're reading a lot of Hemingway. Well, if they were reading Hemingway, they'd understand <laughs> better, uh, and unless maybe they 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 support Franco, in which case then we have a bigger problem. But you know, I like it seems like there's just this incredible short termism and just not understanding how fragile this entire system of self governance is in order to either please Donald Trump or win some, win the Senate runoffs in Georgia, or I mean, maybe it's, maybe they're just like, you know, Henry and not even thinking, uh, just, just reacting in pure panic. Um, so I, I want to put that on the table here. And, and the other point that I, uh, I want to add that comes out of this, this book and some related literature around it is that when it comes to winning and losing in majoritarian countries like the U.S., uh, the losers feel a lot worse about democracy because, you know, in a in a winner take all system, uh, especially with a strong president, they feel totally shut out of power. So this is, you know, to to this to to this point that, James, you were making earlier about how the election is is really close. Uh, and there's you know a lot of people who voted for Donald Trump, 73 million um, who feel like, oh, well, now we're going to get a Biden presidency that's really far to the left. And that's not, you know, what we voted for. And, and how come, you know, if Biden just gets a it's a little bit more of of support than than Trump, suddenly the country moves in a very different direction. Now, again, I think the, the joke is that Biden's not going to be able to do all that much. And, you know, there's there's sort of this performance versus reality, rhetoric versus reality thing that's going on that I'd love to to delve into a little bit more. But still, we are we are in this fear based politics. And, you know, I, I think that one of the fundamental challenges of polarized majoritarian democracy is the sense that 
that whoever loses the election is just going to get no say in how the country is run, even though they might represent 47 or 48 percent of the country. And and, you know, again, we see, uh, you know, this is numerous studies over many years that in majoritarian countries, the losers tend to feel less feel that the system is less legitimate than, you know, in proportional systems in which you know, the power is is much less binary and even losers feel like they they have a little bit of a role to play. So, uh, you know, I want to want to put those those issues on the table. And then, I you know, I, have, I also have some thoughts about the, the the parties and the future of the parties. But, you know, uh, I mean, let's 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 ask those questions. You know, is there something wrong with our political system that makes the losers feel much worse and view the system as as illegitimate? And, you know, what the hell is going on with the Republican Party right now? And what are they doing? And why, why can't they understand the, the, the dangers of their rhetoric for the long term health of this, uh, this democracy? And Julia, I just want to add real quick as a quick follow up to Lee. You know, the consequence of losers feeling like the system is illegitimate and what that does for the long term stability of our country. There's an interesting concept or an interesting wrinkle here, too, when we think about the Electoral College versus the popular vote and Democratic um, voters losing most of the time that dynamic when Republican candidates win with a majority in the Electoral College, but the Democrats win a majority of the popular vote. And the rhetoric surrounding the Electoral College and the legitimacy of those elections is actually quite stark and, and, and amazing. And in whatever one may feel about the Electoral College or the or the national popular vote and what we should do about it, the fact of the matter is the Constitution and our system says that it's a, a majority in the Electoral College right now. And so it is still it's legitimate in that sense. And so we can certainly change it and we can have debates about changing it. And maybe we should change it. I don't know. But I mean, I tend to like the Electoral College. But I think the fundamental point still remains, uh, and this gets to Lee's points, and it's a question I'd like to tease out a little bit more, which is what has been the consequence of, of largely Democrats over the past several years increase, uh, speaking about electoral college victories in increasingly strident, illegitimate terms? And how has that, you know, does that also have an effect on our uh, political institutions? Yeah, I want to I want to jump in on that. I'm glad you brought up the Electoral College and some of these other examples of Democrats kind of questioning legitimacy of elections. And I'm glad you brought up 1824, because I think these all sort of point to the fact that, you know, we've heard a lot about this, that our democracy has these rules, but really we're dependent on norms. And, you know, that's that's kind of true, right? We're um, dependent on kind of norms that people accept certain results. But I think it's also, you're also starting to see, and I, I pointed this out in 2016 after the election, you're starting to see a kind of crack between the way the rules are formally written and the way people kind of view folk legitimacy. And, you know, one debate we could have is about whether the Democrats have, with their rhetoric, encouraged anti-electoral college sentiment or whether they've simply kind of tapped into something that's already there, which is people sort of sense that the person who gets the most votes should win the election. I don't know the answer to that question, but I do think that 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 was on display in 2016, the sort of sense that, okay, Trump won because of the rules, but that there's something unjust about those rules. And that, that, that brings us into this very gray space as far as how we think about procedural legitimacy. But I think there's an additional layer in the Trump situation that we don't see, for example, um, around some Democratic rhetoric about George W. Bush in 2000, and to some extent in 2004, where there was some um, rhetoric without much evidence around the Ohio result. 
But Trump introduces, I think, a new level, which is which is that there was a sense when he was a presidential candidate that he was not respectful of core democratic values. And we see now in the aftermath of the, an election that he has lost that that is true. Those fears were were warranted. And so this adds an additional level of kind of procedural versus substantive democratic legitimacy. And that's, I think, like, it's not a perfect analogy to 1824, but I think it is sort of like you have a you have an election in 1824 that's decided by the House of Representatives, and it's decided in a way that's pretty much in accordance with the rules, but it violates people's kind of sense about what democracy is. Um, Let, let's the uh, House... details of details of 1824. I was just, getting there. just for those. Um, okay. <laughs> Yeah. So 1824, we have we have four candidates for the presidency and no one wins a majority in the Electoral College. Andrew Jackson is widely believed to have won the, the most popular votes um, and had the most Electoral College votes at that point. But the House of Representatives instead chose John Quincy Adams. And the lore behind that is that there is a corrupt there was a corrupt bargain in which um, Henry Clay delivered the how the votes of the Kentucky delegation for for Adams and subsequently became the Secretary of State in the Adams administration. So John so basically Andrew Jackson won most of the votes. He still he didn't win enough to win outright and then he was kind of frozen out by the by the House in the procedure laid out in the Constitution. So everything there was above board in terms of the rules, but it violated people's sense of what an election should be. And I think that's sort of similar to 2016 and then you layer on top of it people's reservations about whether Trump kind Kind of fit our substantive understanding of what a democratic leader should be and we just we have no way of dealing with i think either of those problems yeah and also just to point out and sorry to interrupt but if we think about the language that was used this idea of corruption at the time that word is extraordinarily loaded right and what what jackson is saying is essentially uh, john quincy adams is acting like king george iii he's buying off his ministers in parliament to subvert the will of the people and, you know, incidentally, I think Clay offered the same deal to Jackson and he turned it down. So maybe it's on him. But um, but still, um, I think it's important. The language that we use is extraordinarily important. And the language back then was vicious. It was absolutely vicious. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. And I think that this this does sort of relate to some of Lee's points about losers consent. But I guess where I would want to kind of move the conversation, I think, is how should we how should we understand what's going on right now? with Republicans and Trump and the refusal to concede. Because the beginning of the week was like, probably a lot of our listeners were in on some of these debates because I think we have our our listenership and poli-sci Twitter do have some overlap. But political science Twitter was sort of absorbed in this debate about, you know, what constitutes a coup and everyone was really panicked. And it did, to me, sort of suck all the air out of the room in terms of thinking about what actually happened in the election. There was also a lot of uncertainty about whether some of these strategies might be successful. Not so much the courts, but the efforts to get some of the the states to reverse the popular vote results and send a different slate of electors. Now, how, how concerned should we be? I mean, do we think Biden is ultimately going to be sworn in as president? I mean, yes, I, I, I give that a 99% chance, which is as, as confident as, as I can be. But there's a again, there's this short term versus long term. So short term, does it help Republicans win the Georgia Senate? 
seats. I, I don't know. Maybe could have a, could have a backfiring effect. Could not. I, I I don't know. But certainly there's a sense uh, among Republican strategists, I think that that it it does help motivate Republicans to turn out, which is going to be key in that election to get turnout. But there, there's another another aspect of this, which might be the you know talk about short and long term. But there's also the medium term which is the extent to which it, it undermines Biden's presidency. And, you know, if Trump's goal and Republicans goal generally is to be able to, you know, win back strong in 2022 and, and 2024, uh, then the extent to which you know, Biden's presidency starts off on a foundation of illegitimacy and fraud makes it very difficult for him to, to build much support for what he's doing, uh, puts tremendous pressure on Republicans in the Senate not to cooperate with him uh, and just sort of dooms his presidency right, right from the start, which then you know, makes it easier probably for Republicans to you know, win back the, some seats in the, in the 2022 midterms, maybe hold on to the Senate, maybe take back the House. And then you know, by 2024, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of assuming that Biden isn't going to run for a, a second term, although who knows, depending on, on how things go. But still, you know, I mean, the, the goal is, as it has been in American politics, for you know, so you know, so many decades now is not so much to win by by winning; it's to win by delegitimizing the other side. And you know, yeah, I think to, to James's point, yeah, certainly Democrats are are guilty of that as well. Um, I mean, I, I do tend to agree with uh, points that Democrats have been making this year that Trump. And a second Trump term is a, is a fundamental danger to uh, our basic norms of and, and structures of liberal democracy. So, you know, I think Democrats are right. But I mean, I, I do acknowledge that the uh, nature of our partisan conflict now is 90 percent fear of the other side. And, you know, I think that's a dangerous place to be. Again, I think it's a function of our closely contested majoritarian democracy in which the party coalitions are sort of loose. And the, and the only thing that really holds them together is, you know, opposition to the other side. But, you know, I'm curious, James, what, what you think is going on. So I think about Chiquita Bananas a lot in these kinds of situations. And Chiquita Banana, I guess what, United Fruit Company, Guatemala, 1954, the coup. In Guatemala, Central America in particular, uh, America has a, a long history of trying to topple government successfully, unsuccessfully. And the comments surrounding the, the fear about a coup, and I don't mean to, uh, I don't want to diminish. I think just as our previous guest, Ezra Klein, has said, an ineffective coup attempt is still very, very dangerous. And I agree with that. I'm just not sure that using the structures and the processes that exist under the law that have been consented to and availed and, and by both parties and, and candidates in both parties have availed themselves of is, is a coup. I'm not like, I don't, it can have negative impacts. It can have a very undermining effect and destabilizing effect on our democracy, but it's not a coup. We need to be very basic in this. A coup it requires things. It requires people to take action. And as I said, and there was this big, there was a big kerfuffle earlier when in September when Trump was questioning whether or not mail-in votes would be legitimate. 
and everybody's like, well, he's going to have a coup. And then McConnell and everybody's freaking out. And then McConnell comes out and says the winner of the vote on November 3rd will be the next president. There'll be a peaceful transfer of power as there has been every year since 1792. And everybody breathes a huge sigh of relief. And all the headlines are Mitch McConnell saves the day, basically. Well, I'm sorry. The least popular man in the United States Senate is not going to stop a coup, nor is he going to start a coup. It takes more than Mitch McConnell to have a coup. It takes more than Donald Trump. It takes the military. Where's the military in this? My guess is the military is not going to come to Trump's aid if he tries to stick around and doesn't want to move his stuff out of the West Wing. My guess, it takes the media. Well, I mean, we can uh, see where the media is. I mean, you, you can talk about Fox News. I mean, Fox News took a lot of flack for calling Arizona for Biden long before uh, today. It takes, you know, we, and there's a lot of other media outlets who aren't very favorable to the president. And so what... I, when I actually think about the actual concrete events, what does it take for someone to subvert the Constitution and to stay in office past the time at which they are in office under the Constitution? What does that take? I don't see any of that right now. Now, maybe I'm wrong, and I hope to God that I'm not wrong, but I, I don't see anything of that now. And so I think what, what would be much more productive for our discourse is to talk about the impact of how using the procedures and the laws that we all have supported and used. Al Gore's using them. Hillary Clinton's using them. Everybody's using them. We have recount. We all this stuff. And so that's the more important question. Why is it that waiting a week and going to the courts is somehow going to destroy America? And if that's the case, then why on earth did we make it possible for candidates to wait a week and go to the courts? You see what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. Yes, I mean, I think we should talk about the rhetoric. That's extraordinarily important. But in order for us to do that, we have to isolate it and separate it from the actions, I think. So I think, I mean, I think this all makes sense and will be clear in time. What the seriousness of this is, I tend to agree with James. I think that the, this coups require more, um, more actors and more coordination. But at the same time, I'm not, I'm not totally convinced that some of these strategies don't have any chance of um, of success. So I don't, yeah, I don't know. But I do want to actually move us along a little bit to talk about the actual results of the election and the nature of kind of the, the divided populace. Lee, do you want to kick us off there? Yeah, I mean, so I guess we'll just have to see whether we have an actual coup or, or coup like symptoms. Um, we'll, do you, we'll see do you the think they'll, they'll probably come not. for us first, right? Mm -hmm. the, the free yeah. thinking podcast, the crowd, they're going to shut us down. Uh, first. Mm, yes. So if we're still uh, on the air, America, you have nothing to fear. All right. So so stay tuned to your politics and question feed is, is the takeaway. Yeah. So, I mean, let's look at the results. There was somebody on on Twitter who um, had done some uh, county by county uh, correlations between, you know, over the last several years and the, the county to county vote share correlation from 2016 to 2020 was 0.99, uh, which suggests that there just wasn't a whole lot of movement in most places. Um, you know, to the extent that there was some movement, it looked like, you know, some suburban counties moved a little, moved a little bit towards Biden. Uh, some more highly educated places moved a little bit to Biden. Um, there was seems to have been a, a strong shift in Miami-Dade and the Cuban community to, to Trump. So there's going to be a tendency to over uh, interpret those small shifts because those are the things that uh, make uh, an election go one way or the other in a tightly contested 
country. Um, you know, but you know, the, most places are are either pretty locked in uh, Republican or pretty locked in Democrat. Um, and the other thing that that really strikes me, um, and and this has been happening for a while, but I think it presents an interesting puzzle. Um, you know, is that m- more and more of the economic activity in this country is in counties that voted for Democrats. So I, I saw an interesting analysis that of the 25 states with the highest GDP, 21 of them voted for Biden. And similarly, uh, of the 25 states with the lowest GDP, uh, 21 voted for Trump. So, and you know, that, that, that tracks down to the county level too. So, you know, I mean, we, ha- we, we often talk about the sort of racial identity, cultural divides between the two parties, but there's also a, an economic divide in that the uh, Republicans represent the places that have been increasingly left behind in a, in a globalized economy that concentrates more and more economic activity in cities. And you know that the Republican Party has certainly nurtured that sense of grievance and and feeling left behind, and, and yet they have a you know there, there's a they also have disproportionate political power, so maybe they shouldn't feel so left behind, but economically they are. I mean, and, and that doesn't get into the individual voting patterns, and certainly there's a lot of you know I think I think. We, sometimes have this reductionist debate about economic anxiety and we ignore the fact that economic anxiety is exists everywhere in the country and in fact you know people of color uh, low-income people of color in urban areas you know often have the highest level of economic anxiety as measured by like can they can they make rent can they you know make their next car payment you know are they about to to go bankrupt do can they find a job etc uh, but there, there's also a sense a felt sense of, of of being in a place that's declining that I think is hard to measure in in those statistics. Um, so, you know, I mean, this this I think creates a very challenging divide to navigate if you have, you know, you know that this, you know, economic activity divide. And you know, how should we how should we think about this division between the parts of the country that feel left behind economically, yet also have disproportionate political power. I think this is a really good way to formulate the question, and I don't know that I have a really an answer, but I think that it's really important that we think about this because these areas that are more rural and that have more economic challenges, and, and let's be honest, also are more, for the most part, more white, oh, there are, there are obviously non-white people in rural America too, but these areas are do have a disproportionate amount of political power. I mean, the Dakotas have two senators um, and, you know, and two senators each, right? Four senators total. That's an enormous amount of political power for representing not very many people when you compare this to, you know, California and New York. And that political power, that political power translates into a kind of symbolic power and veto power at the federal level, but it doesn't translate into policies that help revitalize those areas. And I think that is that is actually at odds with American history over the long view, where you have had a more localized politics in which, you know, wielding that kind of power in, in Congress, wielding that kind of represent, representational power has actually resulted in 
localized benefits. And a nationalized polity is just like always this symbolic fight. And the the result is what I've talked about quite a bit on this on this podcast and that kind of emerges from the Skoranek theory of political time, which is this this disconnect between policy and politics, which the national political conversation is about one thing, and then the kind of policy effects are a totally different thing. And it's not clear to me how long that's going to be sustainable. James? Yeah, I, that's an interesting point. If you think about the Dakotas and this concept of a, um, a veto power versus a proactive power to kind of pass legislation that would benefit the places like the Dakotas, you know, we can disagree on the nature of the veto power and who actually grants the veto power. But what's interesting to me is I think you're absolutely correct when it comes to the policy power. And they don't. It's not translating into this, uh, into policies. And, and the reason, and I think the reason why is quite illuminating. And it's because they're not actually trying to do, they're not using their power. They don't go to the Senate and they don't wake up in the morning and say, what can we do today to win? We're really powerful. We're from the Dakotas and we have more power. You know, our voters per capita have more power in the Senate than somebody in California. Let's use that to our advantage. They're not doing that. What's really interesting to me is that neither are the senators from California. Neither are the senators from New York. It's actually quite interesting when you think about it. All of the senators are acting the exact same way, regardless of where they're from and how many people they represent. And, and to the extent that our politics is dysfunctional at present because the Senate isn't doing anything, and that's not the only reason, but it's one of the main reasons, then it suggests to me that the source of our dysfunction is not the political imbalance of power between the Dakotas and the Californias. It's that the Dakotas and the Californias representatives are acting the exact same way in the Senate, which is they're not acting. And I think that it challenges our kind of current perceptions. I mean, we typically run to structural institutional um, you know, problems. And, and so therefore, we need to have uh, solutions that are structural and institutional. When in reality, and we may, I mean, they, they, they may, there may be solutions that we need on that front. But I think before those to work, we have to have senators who ultimately want to benefit their constituencies and want to use their power to benefit their constituencies or to achieve things in their mind that they think they ought to be achieving. And we're just not seeing that. And that's why we have gridlock. We don't have gridlock because the Dakotas and the Californias are waking up each morning and going to war against each other in the Senate and they're not yielding an inch of ground. It's because they wake up each morning, go to the Senate, they have lunch, they look at each other, they kind of say some crazy stuff and then they go home. And gridlock happens in Congress, unlike in traffic jams, when nobody tries to act. And I think that's something that's important. That's what's missing from our debate. And to the extent that there are these growing divides within the party between progressives and centrist Democrats, between Republicans, and I think Lee's research in particular, I think is very spot on here. The, the fiction of, of, of kind of two cohesive parties, while it, while it doesn't represent Americans very well, I think it also leads us to a point where we have gridlock by mutual consent. And I think that's a very, very concerning to me. Let, let me riff on this Dakota's theme for for a minute. Oh, unless Julia, you had something you wanted to to add to James's point. No, no, go ahead. I have. I. I mean, I. I don't know why I picked on the Dakotas, but go for it. Oh well, actually, I think the Dakotas um, actually are are a useful window into into thinking about this. So the Dakotas, like they're, they're like, why do we have North and South Dakota? 
we have a North and a South Dakota because in the Reconstruction era, Republicans tried and successfully did pack the Senate by admitting a bunch of small states in the Plains area that were very low population, uh, including, they actually they admitted Nevada, I think in 1864 with like 5,000 people or something, uh, because you know they, they wanted to uh, ensure that they would have a continued majority in American politics. Now, in the sort of populist progressive era, a lot of those prairie states uh, went, uh, became the home of, of populists and progressives. And they kind of led a revolution inside the Republican Party against the sort of establishment Eastern wing of the party that you know, helped to, to elevate uh, a lot of progressive legislation. Uh, and you know, there, there was a, a kind of you know, a war within the party that ultimately culminated in the, in the 1912 uh, election in which the party split between the Bull Moose progressives and uh, the Stand Pat Republicans under Taft. And some of those, some uh, some of those populists were also Democrats. But but that whole sort of populist progressive movement was in in many ways orthogonal to the polarized Democratic Republican fights of the eighteen nineties, and I think created some space in American politics for new structures, new alignments, and and some you know and and that kept the political system going in a way that that you know was generated some, you know, some, some big changes. Um, you know, so the question to me is, you know, is, is there any space for that new sort of prairie populism that could come from these, these left behind places as the sort of voting parts of the Republican Party shift more and more to be dependent on these places, uh, even though the money of the party is, you know, still just concerned about tax cuts for the rich. So that's that's the kind of question for the Republican Party, and we can get into the questions for the Democratic Party, too. Yeah, I've been thinking about both of these things a lot, and I wrote a little bit about this at Mistress of Faction earlier this week about kind of the, the GOP and Trump, which I've, I've consistently seen as a kind of very complicated relationship. And I think this is related to the to the kind of disjunction question about the disconnect between politics and policy, where I think that we can reasonably conclude from the election that this is not Trump's party exactly in the sense that he ran behind a lot of Republicans, right? A lot of Republican congressional candidates and that the Republicans overperformed expectations in um, in those down-ballot races and, you know, and Trump still you know, we can debate about exactly how handily, but lost pretty handily. At the same time, I think it has become a party of Trumpism because that's a that's a more winning combination of it's a cultural conservatism that first of all emphasizes in its rhetoric, emphasizes nationalism and immigration. And actually D I think Trump sort of relative to earlier Republicans who were closer to the, the civil rights era actually has de-emphasized, I guess, I don't know, he talks a lot about crime, uh, but his rhetoric is sort of more mixed in terms of the old tropes about black-white relations. And I think we sort of see that in the vote totals. But he does talk a lot about the suburbs and crime, so he picks up on those kinds of old tropes. But it, and it, I think it de-emphasizes the anti-gay rhetoric of the kind of Bush years, even though the policies haven't 
particularly changed. But it moves to the to the left in, again in the rhetoric and the rhetoric only on economic issues. And that's where the Republican Party, I think, really suffers in terms of public opinion. So this is basically the theme that, you know, the Hacker and Pearson theme from our guests earlier this this year and their their work on plutocratic populism. But I think that that being a Trumpist party really depends on that combination of kind of like you move right on a particular set of issues, you sort of selectively emphasize other cultural and racial issues, and um, and then you move to the left on economic policy. But then like that doesn't the latter part of that doesn't manifest at all in actual policy outcomes. And the big question for me is how long can this be sustained? And that is the question, I think, of how long Trumpism can kind of float along the GOP versus at what point do they need to actually really think about how to be a party that can be more nationally competitive? Yeah, I don't really know the answer to that question, but I think that the relationship between Trump or Trumpism and the GOP is is complicated. And so I've been kind of thinking about how, you know, what that might look like. James, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it turns out James Madison, who was wrong about a lot of things, was right about a lot of things. And one of those is that it's very, very hard for a national political party to take meaningful action on a host of policy issues over a sustained period of time because of the unique nature of our nation and our institutional structure that we've grafted on top of that to reinforce these parchment barriers that we have in our uh, in our uh, constitution. And at times in the past, that has not always been the case. I can think of the tariff fights and the sectional issues of the early 1830s. Think of the slavery and the abolition movement and the Civil War. But for the most part, that's been correct. And, you know, today we often we have this mentality of James Madison was wrong about this, that that our parties are very cohesive, that it is all very simple. But I think the I think you're right. It's a lot more complex and the relationship between the parties or between the Republicans and Trump is a great case in point. I'm looking at North Dakota right now. And it's incidentally, it's the Peace Garden state. I did not know that. But the reason I had to look it up, I worked in the Senate for much of my adult life. And I could not remember both senators from North Dakota. I, my job is to write about the Senate. I could not remember the names of both senators. I knew one of them, Senator John Hoven, but I, did, I forgot about Kevin Kramer. John Thune, Mike Rounds, are these the names that, you know, John Thune's the second in command in, in the Senate. He's the majority whip. But these aren't, you know, these aren't names that are on the tips of the tongues of every progressive activist in America who's saying they are thwarting us from arriving in the promised land. Why? Because they're not. They're not. They show up. They talk to their colleagues. They go on about their day and then they go home. And they're not, they're not vetoing stuff. They're not using their positions of power to do Jesse Helms type stuff and maintain tobacco programs for a long time and to fight, you know, all kinds of different social issues. They're not using, they're not doing that stuff. And what would happen if they did, I think, would get us into it would it would show us a lot of things. One, and this, you know, Wendy Schiller's work on state delegation dynamics, I think, is really important here because state delegations are extraordinarily different. I mean, Richard Shelby and, and Jeff Sessions are two fundamentally different senators who believe in a whole host of different things in Alabama. And they see Alabama differently. This is like a Hannah Pitkin type concept of representation, too. But it's, you know, there's a lot more complexity there. And if you think about the legislative process is what, you know, Waro and Schickler, uh, Eric Schickler, Gregory Waro, call the information revelation mechanism. 
politics has a wonderful way of increasing uncertainty and showing us that we don't know everything we thought we knew. And we have to remember that these members are making decisions in imperfect, you know, in an uncertain environment with imperfect information. And ultimately what happens when you have a process that plays out over time, it reveals new information. It reveals that there are actually more nuances and divisions and cracks in the parties than we think there are. And when that doesn't happen, it becomes easier for us to have this concept of, well, they're all Republicans. They all agree. I brought this up on our issue about Pluto, uh, episode about plutocratic populism. Pat Toomey and Mike Lee and Marco Rubio do not agree on tax policy. Fundamentally, across the board, do not agree on tax policy. Jeff Sessions and Pat Toomey do not agree on trade policy. Right? David Vitter and Pat Toomey do not agree on banking policy. And so I think, but we don't see that. And why don't we see it? Because the parties, we don't, well, there's no opportunity for them to disagree with one another. And it's because they're not being forced to. And incidentally, that's also why we don't have any compromise because compromise, as we know, emerges out of fights, of debates. Without debates, you don't get compromise. That's just, it's impossible. And so I think if we, if the process were to actually work and it could be messy and, and, and a lot of conflict or not, we would see a lot more nuance and we would see, I think, political parties that are just as divided as they've been for a very long time. I mean, maybe those divisions aren't regional. You know, I can think Mike Rounds on, on trade has you know some very industrial uh, Rust Belt type positions on trade that a John Thune may not share. And but we 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 don't see that and we just equate the two and we lump them together and we use that to take cues and, and basically interpret the world around us. And then reality, what happens is that we've created a gap. There's a massive gap between the reality of politics and how we think about politics and what we see when we look at that reality. And I think the ongoing dysfunction that we see is that we're not taking an account of that reality. And if we were, it would turn out that it's not going to be, I mean, it's not going to be great. I mean, it's going to be uncertain. Who knows what's going to happen? But in reality, I think that the parties would be a lot less united than we think they are. I mean, this is a Republican party that was calling on Trump to step down two weeks before the election. John Thune called on Donald Trump, his, his nominee, to be the president in 2016. To just, why don't you just leave the ticket, buddy, because of the Access Hollywood tape. He wins the presidency. John Thune immediately changes, of course. But then, but his his policies haven't changed. The Republican Party is extraordinarily divided on issues of immigration, trade, foreign policy. This is why Jeff Flake retired. He called these things, he tried to place them beyond the, the debate. He said that these are part of our civic creed. Well, you know, they're not. They're actually the foundation of the Republican Party in the 1850s. But, you know, we'll leave that aside. But they're up for debate. And you have a Republican Party right now that doesn't want to debate these issues because they don't agree and they don't know where their voters are. They have no clue where their voters are. And so when you have that kind of uncertainty, you stick in the herd, you don't diverge and you don't you certainly under no circumstances force issues um, to a head because you don't want to reveal those divisions. You may be wrong where everybody is. And, and if you're a Republican right now, you're being told if you do that, Karl Marx is going to be the next president of the United States. Karl Marx is going to run the Senate. Karl Marx is going to run the House. And that scares the crap out of you. And you think that the Republic's going to fall into the ocean. And so you just kind of, you know, you trim your sails a little bit and you stay in the fold and you go on about your business. And guess what? Nothing ever changes. And that's where we are. And that's where we've been for a while now. Yeah, I think that, I mean, as you know, James, we kind of broadly agree on this, the inter-party or intra-party divisions um, and how those have been kind of washed away in this narrative of, of polarization and that those are really important. The only thing I would add 
there and then I'll um, move on to Lee and then we'll we'll wrap up is the only thing I would add there is that while you may not hear progressives say the names of the Dakota senators, I think when you hear talk about the filibuster, that's essentially what you're talking about, right? When you hear talk about the filibuster, what we're essentially hearing is the veto the veto power of the minority of a minority of senators who represent potentially a very small slither sliver of of Americans. That's not but let me push back on that just for a second. I mean, Kevin Kramer is not the kind of guy I suspect that's going to go down to the floor and speak for two days. No, nobody. And how many times is Kevin Kramer doing this stuff, right? I mean, my, but that's not know. what the filibuster is. It's the votes against cloture. Right. But that's because the majority allows it to be that way. I mean, Robert Byrd would give great speeches in the 90s about how he broke the backs of filibusters by using the rules and forcing senators into uncomfortable positions and forcing people like Mike Rounds and and, and Kevin Kramer and John Hoven to actually stand up and do something that they don't want to do. And, and, and he's like, and it goes away. And, and I think that's, that's interesting because that's not what we see Democrats doing when they're in positions of power. And, and that tells me that it's more convenient electorally to blame the Dakota senators without naming them because, and without actually pointing to actions that they've taken to thwart your agenda and to shift the blame to them. And you kind of can half-heartedly schedule a vote on something. It's easy for everybody around. Your side can vote yes, the other side can vote no, and then you go on about your business. And so everybody wins. But that's not the way that this country has ever been run in the past. And if, going back to Waro and Schickler, I mean, for, for over 100 years, we didn't have a, any way to end a filibuster. And we did big things in America. The Senate did big things, and they actually did them on smaller votes. They had more majoritarian type vote outcomes, not supermajority coalitions passing things. So why is it that the Senate back then was able to do something that it can't do it today? And people say, oh, well, it's workload. Well, workload, what? they're not doing anything. It's not workload. It's like, not, what are they doing? I'm not disagreeing with you about this sort of, I mean, what you're describing in a lot of ways is fundamentally this dis, this disconnect between policy and politics. I guess what I'm just saying, what I'm saying is that I do think that this, this has a sort of institutional manifestation in the way that progressives talk about it. And maybe that's, that's not correct. Um, I think maybe, you know, that's likely the case, but I think that there is some kind of general sense of what, um, what is and is not going on. All right, Lee, bring us home. What have, what have we learned from this discussion? I just want to make one quick point on the, the filibuster that we, we had a, an episode in the past on the filibuster that folks can, can listen to. But part of the uh, reason uh, that we haven't gotten rid of the filibuster, I think, is because it, it helps the majority party to hold their coalition together by saying, hey, we can't, we can't take a vote on that. Um, so I, I want to turn to Florida to note something that I think a lot of people found puzzling, which is that although Florida... Uh, Reelected Donald Trump, Floridians also overwhelmingly supported an increase in the minimum wage as a ballot initiative. And this is something that we've seen for the last several years is that supposedly uh, or, uh, Trump states, red states, have supported minimum wage ballot initiatives. They've supported expanding uh, initiatives that would expand Medicaid. Uh, even though state legislatures have tried to undo them, Republican state legislatures. And they, they are also supporting uh, initiatives that make it uh, legal to use marijuana. Uh, so these are policies that the Republican Party does not support, in fact, opposes. 
and yet voters in these red states are saying, actually, we want these policies. And you know, this is consistent with a, a lot of polling that I've, I've both seen and, and done, which is that, you know, the, the sort of democratic uh, economic agenda is broadly popular. 70% of people would say, yeah, let's raise taxes on the rich. Let's have more social spending, uh, expand Medicaid, you know, we, you know and uh, a higher minimum wage. Uh, so, so there's some sort of disconnect there, which is that a lot of uh, Republican voters, although they, they want these policies, are still voting for the Republican Party, which, you know, we takes us back to the point that we were talking about before. So then there's a question of like, well, why aren't they voting for Democrats then? Um, and, you know, Julia, what you were talking about before, uh, this question of like, how long can Republicans maintain this? Uh, and I think the answer in some ways is, well, as long as the Democrats allow them to, in the sense that there's an argument in the Democratic Party, um, you know, well, how come the Democrats didn't do better? So one argument is that, well, Democrats talked about this race stuff too much. The, the defund the police hurt them. Uh, Black Lives Matter hurt them. Another argument is is Democrats didn't go bold enough on on a lot of this progressive economic stuff, which is broadly popular and had Biden just run more straightforwardly on a on a on a really working class economic agenda. Uh, you know, he he would have won even more decisively. But there's another aspect to uh, we didn't talk about why the polling was off, but there's an interesting theory that one of the reasons that the polling was off is that the sampling strategies and weighting strategies that pollsters use um, are, are are increasingly not properly weighting people who uh, just just think like the entire system is is screwed up and they don't want to participate in anything like this. essentially low trust voters, which used to be split between the two parties and are now increasingly in the Republican camp. So there, there's something that that neither of the two parties are really capturing. And, and I mean, I, I do think that that there is basically there's a there's a 60 roughly 60 percent majority that probably would be. Yeah, for for the party that would be slightly right of center on cultural issues and pretty solidly left of center on economic issues, that that would be a winning party in the U.S. But I don't see either of the two party coalitions getting there, and because they are they are creatures of their of their coalition. So as long as that is a is a contested territory of cross pressured voters who are sort of up for grabs. Um, in some sense, although they mostly vote like partisans, you know, I and as long as the, the parties can just get away with demonizing each other, which is the problem of our, our two party system, um, we're not going to see that action that James is calling for. We're not going to see responsiveness. We're just going to see more of these, you know, elections that look pretty much like the previous election with only a, a slight, uh, you know, uh, shift in some you know key voting demographic and more more gridlock more more division and you know more delegitimization of our entire electoral system and uh, you know at some point you know like we don't really have a functioning democracy anymore and that's you know may maybe we're already there i don't know James, what's your last word then i'm i'm giving myself the last last word and then we're wrapping up i was, I was just going to say that was very very optimistically thank you for for that 
Um, no, maybe well, the, maybe once the losers realize that they're going to enact broad scale electoral reform and will become a thriving proportional democracy again, as you know. Maybe the winners in our debate should get to pick the color that the losers' states in the electoral college map will be in the next election. That could be a, a fun wrinkle. Maybe it would, you know influence the west coast vote totals because as you see the votes coming in and you know if if kentucky goes you know chartreuse or something you're like okay i don't want to be a part of that and so you may vote differently i don't know but yeah i think we need to think creatively i love chartreuse yeah (laughs) but ultimately we need to find at the end of the day and and i take julia's point about progressives and, and the filibuster and i think and it's correct i'm not disagreeing with it what i'm saying is that at the end of the day we need to we need when we think about events and actions that are making making our system dysfunctional. We need to identify and name those events and actions. And too often we don't. And what we result, what the result is, is this weird kind of shadowy force that somehow is ruining American politics when we cannot actually point to individuals who are doing these things. And in, in, in the case of the Senate, of filibustering or trying to overcome filibusters. And I think what that does is by by being comfortable with the shadowy force, what it does is that it it by blaming it, we end up buying into this idea that all the senators are victims, that nobody has any agency, that by extension, their voters don't have agency, that no one can change anything, that the whole system is doomed and that the only way to solve it is to scrap it and start over. And I think that is extraordinarily unproductive and, un, and unhealthy. Because I think our, we have a fabulous system. It's not perfect. It never was. And it's gotten more perfect over time, thankfully. But we have a fabulous system. And I think that the solution to our institutional dysfunction we right, have right now is to use our institutions, to use them. And, and, and let's start there. And then when we go from there and we can then say, OK, now that we're using them, there are real problems. Now let's figure out how to tackle those problems. Um, but, but we need to first try to solve the problems that we are naming before we can then change the institutions because the institutions are never going to solve all of our problems. It's the people in them. So weirdly, I find myself not totally in agreement with, with James about us having a fabulous system, but also I think somewhat, but in agreement with the idea that the institutions will never solve the problems for us. And when I hear about kind of what will make us a thriving democracy, my response is what will make us a thriving democracy is when we shrink the percentage of people who will not be in a coalition with or accept being governed by people of color, then we will have a thriving democracy. And as long as there's a contingent of people who are not only amenable to, but actively seeking to delegitimize, I mean, let's be perfectly straightforward, right? Delegitimize black votes, then the institutions will always be a certain amount of, of shuffling. Um, but what what I'm taking away from this conversation, and this is going to sound arcane, but I, I don't think it is, um, is that I'm glad that James brought up 1824, because I think it illustrates just how much our institutions are strained to make up deficits in substantive legitimacy. And this was one set of problems in the 1820s, and it's, it's a much different set of problems in what, you know, a democracy where we're trying to be multi-ethnic, where we're trying to be um, a democracy in such a, a huge and unwieldy country. And, you know, I think that's really, for me, that's the thing, that's the starting point. So we thank you all for listening to this, this episode. We've, we've had a long and wide-ranging conversation. Continue to, to keep up with us for uh, conversations behind the headlines, behind what's obvious, where we hope that we generate more questions than answers. This has been Politics in Question. 
Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.